before I get too far down the road here, let me just say on behalf of my family that we thank you for your continued prayers on behalf of my grandma, as was announced earlier, she did uh, pass away this morning. And so uh, our family does continue to uh, covet your prayers uh, during this uh, season of uh, mourning. And it is uh, bittersweet. Uh, we are left behind to uh, mourn for Grandma. We do not mourn like those who have no hope. And we look forward to the resurrection and that great reunion that is to come. It is time for our kids to head off to Children's Bible Hour. So I thought I would uh, lead us in one of my grandma's favorite songs. <clears throat> There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. For our Father looks over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we will be reading verses 6 through 12. We continue our study through the book of 1 John. We are nearing the end of it. We have entitled this uh, series, Blessed Assurance, because John, the Apostle, and through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, is providing us with the assurance of our salvation. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 6, hear now the word of the true and living God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Let us pray. Father, there are things that our brother John wrote that are sometimes difficult to understand. And this is one of those sections. I pray that you would 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can understand what he is communicating. And then on the other hand, Father, there are things that our brother John has written that are very clear. And I pray that we would not only clearly understand, but also clearly make known these things to others. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, first of all, a prologue. If you have not watched, if you've not been watching the live streams every Monday and Thursday, you miss a lot, <laughs> all right? Uh, Buddy and I uh, put a lot of work into those. Uh, they don't just uh, happen automatically. Uh, and uh, that was something we started when the pandemic began. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to watch those when they uh, premiere if you are able to. And I say that because specific to this lesson this morning, Monday night's broadcast, this past Monday night when I did the live stream, I laid a foundation concerning verse 7. Because if you are working with a King James Version, for example, you will notice that when I was reading my verse 7, your verse 7 read very differently. And I laid out the reason for that on the Monday night episode. And there's a lot there. And I don't have time to recapitulate and go over all of that information again. I would just direct you if you want to explore that in some depth. And I did go into, into detail about uh, that. Uh, go and watch that live stream from Monday night. It's called, Do We Have What the New Testament Writers Wrote? It's on the Davis Park Church of Christ YouTube channel. The shorthand version is this. The reason my English Standard translation, verse 7, reads different than the King James version is because of the manuscript evidence that we have. It seems very clear from the manuscripts that we have that when the King James Version has that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, that that is not what John wrote, and that's really what we're after. The evidence indicates that that whole phrase came to us by way of a marginal reading that found its way ultimately into the text. And there's a lot of history there that has to do with one of the early textual critics named uh, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, and kind of the uh, political and economic pressure that was upon him when he was producing his editions of the Greek New Testament. But again, suffice to say that that phrase, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, that is not what John wrote in the original. And you may think, well, but my King James says, there's history there, all right? There's a whole history there, and I've documented it and worked through that in the Monday Night Broadcast if you're interested in that. I say that because what we are interested in is what John wrote. And what did he write? And I believe we have that here in my English Standard. Most uh, uh, newer versions read similarly. If you're working with the New American Standard, it's going to read uh, almost the exact same. There are three that bear witness is what the New American Standard says, if I remember correctly. And uh, the RSV, New Revised Standard, NIV, all the other versions are going to read uh, very much the same way. And that's because, again, 
manuscript evidence that has come to light since the King James Version was published back in 1611. Uh, we just have a lot more resources. And by the way, the King James translators would agree with me in saying, oh, yeah, of course, we want what John wrote, and seeing the evidence, well, yeah, that's not supposed to be in there. I say that because the translators wrote a preface to the King James Version. I don't know if you are aware of that, another history point here, but if you've not read it, it's substantial, it'll take some work, uh, but read the preface and you'll see, they're, I'm in line with them, they're in line with me, however you want to say that, all right, in terms of translation. So there's the prologue. Second thing I'll say here, uh, as we kind of introduce the topic now, is this is one of the difficult texts uh, of Scripture. Verse 6, what is it John is communicating here? I know what he's written, but, but what, what is it he's saying with these witnesses? You know, the water, the blood, the Spirit, verse 7 and 8 as well. Uh, it, it gets kind of tricky, and there are different ways that Christians historically have understood what John is communicating here. I'm going to present a case here that I think is, is fairly solid in terms of what John is communicating here. Second, there are other things here in this text that are very plain. Whoever has a son has life. There's no confusing that, all right? Uh, and and uh, whoever does not have the son does not have life. That, that is very plain, very straightforward. And we've come to expect that from John. As we've worked our way through his book... Uh, this epistle, which again I believe is somewhat of a, a commentary, uh, expansion, maybe a, an appendix, if you will, to his gospel. There are those, if, if we are to reconstruct the, the history there, there are those who have taken what he's written in the gospel and have distorted it. And so he writes this first epistle to say, time out, not so fast. These guys, they are the, seem to be the early roots of what would become full-blown Gnosticism, kind of a proto-Gnostic uh, influence has come in and is threatening the church. And there may even be a split that's taken place. That, that whole, they've gone out from us to show that they are not of us and all that back in chapter 2. And so John writes to say, let me set the record straight and be absolutely clear about the Jesus that I knew. And, and he is, he is uh, focused in on vital issues about that. But again, the reason he's being so specific is if you start messing with the gospel, you are messing with people's assurance in their salvation. And so he comes, uh, he comes across here very, very clear, very specific in a number of ways as well. The title of this lesson is Three's Company. And I'm not appealing to the 1970s comedy sitcom, right, and all that. I'm talking about the phrase Three's Company, Four's a Crowd. Because while there are three that testify... John squeezes in a fourth. I don't know if you caught that as you were reading verse 9. You see, there's also the testimony of God, God the Father. You have the Father, the Spirit, you have blood and water. These four make up a crowd of witnesses that are all testifying to the simple truth about the identity of Christ and what He has done historically in order to bring us salvation. So let's dig in here. Verse 6, there... This is He, this is He, present tense. Don't miss that. It's not He, this, this was He who came. That's true. He did come historically. But John's emphasis is on the present reality 
of the identity of Jesus. When he went back to the Father's right hand, he didn't stop being the Son of God and the Messiah and everything that he claimed to be. He still is the Son of God. This is he who came. Now we're pointing back to the historical fact and the historical reality of the coming of Christ into time, space, and history. But then John focuses in on, I believe, two specific historical events from the life of Christ. Water and blood. Water and blood. Again, there have been all kinds of explanations for what John is communicating here. For example, both uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the Reformer, said that these are the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper. Well, that's kind of clever in their interpretation, but no, I I don't think we have the the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper here. Strange way to talk about them, by the way. I mean, not baptism so much, but the blood. Others connected this to the Gospel of John. Over in John chapter 19 and verse 34. Remember, after Jesus died, one of the things that happened was a Roman soldier took a spear and stuck it into the side of Christ to make sure he was dead. And when they pulled it out, blood and water came out. And, and so, you know, guys like Augustine and other early church commentators latched onto that and said there's a connection here that John is making about the water and the blood. Perhaps. What I see John doing here, again, he's, he's been very focused on the historical reality of Jesus' coming. And so what he keys in on here are the historical events of, first, the baptism of Christ, the water, and the crucifixion of Christ, the blood that was shed on the cross. He does this because, again, if you dig into the history, there were some early church heretics, in particular one was named Serinthus, and Serinthus was a contemporary with John. There's one uh, tradition that goes that John and a disciple were going to uh, a public bathhouse, and John went in, and before the disciple could come in, John came rushing out, and he said, come, let us flee, for the heretic of truth, Serinthus, is in there, and the bathhouse may collapse on him any moment, all right? John didn't have a very high opinion of Serinthus. That's because Serinthus preached a different Jesus. All right. Serinthus said that when Jesus was baptized, the, the Christ spirit came and dwelt in Jesus of Nazareth. Prior to his baptism, he's just Jesus. At his baptism, the Christ spirit takes over, and you kind of get this body snatcher theology. And now the Christ spirit is going around, and he's the one who's doing all this stuff, not the Jesus of Nazareth. And then on the cross, remember when Jesus is dying and he says, my, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that was the moment that the Christ Spirit left Jesus of Nazareth. And now here is Jesus of Nazareth waking up on the cross after being in kind of this comatose state for three years going, how did I end up here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the, that was the Jesus or the Christ Spirit of Serinthus. And so John hones in on these two points of baptism and crucifixion, and he says that this is the one who came through, that's a good translation of that, through water and through blood. What John is communicating here is, no, no, no. Serinthus, he he doesn't get it right. Jesus was the Christ through and through. Both prior to his baptism, he was still the Christ, 
That's what you get the, the whole virgin birth and all the, the, the things that were taking place prior to his baptism. He was Jesus the Christ through his baptism and then also through the blood. He didn't stop being the Christ at the crucifixion. He continued on being the Christ on through the burial and the resurrection as well. John is combating the heresy that was present in his day. And he emphasizes the water and the blood. Not through the water only, but through the water and the blood. Again, he's the Christ through and through. I emphasize this point, and I think John as well emphasizes this, because heresy hasn't gone away. There are still those who want to distort the message of the cross. I've talked previously about those who talk about Oh, the cross, that's just cosmic child abuse. You know, you have the father killing his own son. And we talked about how that doesn't take seriously, first of all, our own sin, because that's what's, that's what's being atoned for at the cross. It doesn't take seriously the atonement. It doesn't take seriously the trinity. And it doesn't take seriously the full deity of Christ. And it collapses under its own weight. But then there are others who look at the cross and will say things like, and this is a quote, there is nothing divine in the blood. Uh, that's, again, a, a direct quote from a contemporary heretic. There's nothing divine in the blood. Heresy of heresies. Jesus shedding his blood, that is the Son of God on the cross. You see, really what people want, and, and a statement like that betrays this, what they want is a bloodless, sterile gospel. And they will do everything they can to try and eliminate the cross. That, that, uh, that's so barbaric. It's unbecoming of the, the God of Scripture. Not for John. John says he was Christ in the blood as well. And indeed, we need that blood. This Make the connection back to where we started with this book back in chapter 1. Remember this? Uh, 1 and verse 7 of 1 John, yes, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son cleanses us, keeps on cleansing us of all of our sin. If you eliminate the cross and you try to get rid of the blood, you don't have the forgiveness of your sins and you have just forfeited the gospel. There's no good news without the blood that is shed on the cross. This is why John, again, is so specific about there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And he points to the historical reality of the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus and roots our faith in history. Let's back up and get the Spirit as well. The Spirit is the one who testifies. He is testifying, present tense. Even as John is writing this epistle, it is the testimony of the Spirit that is coming across. The Spirit is the truth. Uh, it's the Spirit who is in back of, by the way, the Word, the Scriptures. Remember what Jesus prays in John chapter 17, your Word is truth, He says. Well, it's the Spirit who's in back of that Word, and no wonder God's Word is truth is because it comes from the Spirit who is the truth. Jesus himself identifies himself as the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So notice this. You have here, at least implicitly, a connection to the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Because the Father, His Word is truth. You have Jesus who is truth incarnate. And then you have the Spirit who is truth. Father, Son, Spirit, they're all truth because they're all God. The three exist eternally as one God. And so, again, these three, they testify, they bear witness. Again, it's, a, it's an ongoing testimony. It's a present reality that they are continuing to testify. And these three agree. There is perfect agreement. By the way, three, any significance to having three witnesses? This is at least, again, implicitly an appeal back to the law. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, remember, you needed at least two or three witnesses for the testimony to stick. This is, by the way, picked up also in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in 2 Corinthians 3, 13-11, 2 Timothy 5, 21, you still need three witnesses. And these three agree. Remember this in, in the gospel? Remember when Jesus is on trial? It's a circus court, kangaroo court type trial. And they're trying to bring all these witnesses in to try and bring uh, testimony against Jesus. They're all false witnesses, and what ends up happening? They all start disagreeing with one another. Remember that? He's still condemned, though, because that's the, that's the unrighteousness of humanity, suppressing the truth of the falsehood there. They can't even agree. All, three, all, all the witnesses they bring all disagree. Here are three, though, and they all agree. Why is that? Because ultimately they're rooted in the divine. They're rooted in God himself. And God does not disagree with God. The Spirit is not bringing a different word than, the, than Christ. Christ does not bring a different word than the Father. All three of them agree. And so we would expect their witnesses, the water, the, the blood, and the Spirit, to all agree. And they do. They do. They all agree. These true witnesses, they accredit Jesus for who He is, Jesus the Christ. Verse 19 is rather interesting. If we receive the testimony of men, and we do, Think about that. We bring people into a court of law, and they put their hand on a Bible, and they promise, they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help them God, right? Why put the hand on the Bible? Because they are appealing to a higher authority. That if they do not tell the truth on the stand, there is one who will take them to task and bring them to account on the final day. You may be able to lie on the stand under oath. And you may get away with it in a court of law. But you do not get away with it in the divine court. That's why you put your hand on the Bible. By the way, there are secularists who are like, ah, it's just, it's just formalities, right? That's just, that's just ceremony. No, no, it's not. And I guarantee you, if it were the secularist, who was brought to court, he would want the witness to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God, right? That's the inconsistency of the worldview, by the way. We receive the testimony of men, even though that may be a fallible witness. Do we remember everything perfectly? No. No, we don't. But then notice this. Notice the connection here. This is a lesser to greater argument. The lesser, argue, the lesser thing is the testimony of men who are fallible witnesses. The greater testimony is God, who never lies, who is an infallible witness. 
the testimony of God is greater. And again, that's because he's perfect in knowledge, knows everything, he's an infallible witness, or, uh, and this is, uh, this is causal. Uh, this, is, this is why we uh, believe uh, this is the testimony God, of God that he has borne concerning his son. Uh, the testimony, again, appeals to the historical fact and the historical reality of Christ came, wa- water and blood, baptism and crucifixion. You have the ongoing testimony of the Spirit. He has borne, and he continues to bear witness. That's the force of what John is communicating here about the testimony of God. I just want you to see this here once again. You have harmony within the Trinity. You have the testimony of God, the Father, is greater. You have the testimony that the Spirit is bringing. But then you also have the testimony of the Son. He's the one who had to come, take on flesh, live among us, baptized, crucified, and all that. All three witnesses agree. Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. And so, the one believing... The one who keeps on believing in the Son. Notice, again, this is, this is the, the ongoing, the, the continued, the habitual practice of the believer. This is not a, a once and done thing. Yeah, I, I believed at one point. In the, I, I, yeah, I, I gave the nod to God and we're all good now. Ongoing faith, continued faith in the Son of God is required. It's not merely faith in the facts either, by the way. Just believing facts, I mean, anybody can do that. Notice this is specifically faith in the Son of God. It's faith in the person of Christ. Faith in Him. And that's where our faith is, and He is the proper object of our faith. Because of the testimony He is born, our faith is well placed in Him. Whoever believes, the one who continues to believe in the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. You continue to have the testimony of God in you. Well, what is that testimony? There's, again, a number of ways that this has been understood. I take this, because of the close connection to and the close mention of the Spirit, and we've already seen as we've gone through 1 John, the Father has given us His Spirit. We have the Spirit who's within us. It is the Spirit who testifies here. I think this testimony, at least from my vantage point, is that the testimony that we have within us is the Spirit of God who testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. Uh, and, and so um, uh, that's uh, the significance here. We continue to believe in the Son, and we continue to have that testimony within us. The contrast here is the one who does not believe This is the unbeliever. It is, again, the habitual practice of this individual to not believe, to reject the testimony of God. And that's the significance of the one, whoever does not believe, has made him, made God, a liar. It's not that God is a liar. He's born clear, true testimony, overwhelming testimony. A whole whole crowd of witnesses are, are brought here. It's the unbeliever who looks at the, at the testimony, who looks at all of the evidence and rejects it. And in that way, because of that rejection, again, has made God a liar. They fail to trust the testimony. 
They fail to believe the witnesses. This is why I've said before, I'll continue to say, the, the, prob- the problem that the unbeliever faces is not a problem of evidence. It's not a problem of lack of information. God has provided overwhelming and abundant evidence and information. It's a moral problem. It is that the unbeliever loves their sin more than they love God. And so he has, uh, he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Uh, yeah, that's, he, he disbelieved God. He continues to refuse, and, and he continues to reject that testimony and therefore does not believe. He continues in his unbelief uh, that God has, again, he's borne this testimony concerning the son, that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. He is exactly who he claimed to be. And this is the testimony. Uh, So, again, based on the foregoing and all the witnesses brought here, the testimony as it pertains to us is that God gave us eternal life. He gave us. And and the the force of this is it's it's a past tense thing. It's a snapshot event in the past. And I believe that John here probably has in mind our conversion, that when we are converted, when we believe uh, and put our faith in Christ, and we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, when, when we are baptized and, and immersed and have all of our sins washed away by the blood of Christ and, and, and we are raised to live this new life with the Holy Spirit living within us, John, talking about our whole conversion, he says, God gave us eternal life. That is when He gave, He gifted us eternal life. That is when we passed from death to life. God gave us this eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Again, this is, this is clear. It's unmistakable. The life, this eternal life, is in the Son. And may I just emphasize here, it is only in the Son. This eternal life is not found in any other prophet. It's not found in any other God, little g. You won't get it from Allah. You won't get it from Muhammad. You won't get it from Buddha. You won't get it from Joseph Smith. You won't get it anywhere else. It is only in the Son that we have this life. This life is in His Son. He's the only one who can supply this life. And that's because He's the only one who laid down His life for us that we might have life. He died so that we might live. But of course, we know He didn't stay dead. On the third day, He rose from the dead. And He lives forevermore and is at the Father's right hand. And this is why He is the source of this life. It is only in the Son that the Father gives life. The life is in the Son. God gave us eternal life. And now John uh, shifts just slightly to the present reality that we have of possessing this life. He says, whoever has the Son has life. And this is all present tense. Do you have the Son? Or do you have life? My brothers, my sisters, do you have the Son? You have life. There's, there's your assurance. 
You have Jesus, you have everything you need. You have eternal life. And it is a present reality that we have it. We currently possess it. This is the force of John's words in this verse and also in verse 13, which we'll take a look at next week. But let me just pause here for a moment. Because in our fellowship, Churches of Christ, we, we, have, we have some strange ideas that, that crop up from time to time. And I just want to address one here about the, the present possession of this eternal life. When I say that we currently have it, number one, I hope you see it's rooted in what John has said. I'm just pulling from John what he says. You have it. And that's a present tense verb. All right. And it's also in what's called the indicative mood. That's the mood of reality. We really do have right now eternal life. But I don't want to, what I don't want to leave you with the impression is, is that there's not more in store. Of course there is. We, we not only have it as a current possession, but there's also the prospect and the promise from God that there's more in store. All right? I say this because uh, one brother in the Lord, a very well-known brother in the Lord, who has written on these verses, has written the following in his commentary on 1 John. He says, Only those who have the Son have the life, and since having the Son is conditioned on faithfulness and devotion to Him, it follows that the life here contemplated is conditional. It is in this sense only that one has eternal life. Eternal life is not a present possession of the Christian. It's a promise. We only have it in prospect. To which I say to my brother, I love you. But no, that's not, that's not accurate. That does not reflect what John writes here. In fact, we're, one, we're left to wonder, if our brother is correct, why does John say it the way that he does? If he wanted to say it's yet a future prospect, there's, there's a couple of different ways he could have said it, a number of different ways he could have said it. But he writes it this way, and you have to deal with what he says. And what the text says is, you have the Son, you have life. You have it right now. You really do. Now, does that negate the prospect and promise of the full and final realization of this eternal life? No, not at all. There's more in store. But you've got to enjoy it in the here and the now as well. And it is a joy. Aren't you glad to be a Christian? It's the best life on the planet. And so with all due respect to my brother, he is just flat wrong on this. Another brother has written on this, and he puts it this way. He says, the present active verb, have, clearly represents a present possession as well as a future one. Of course, the Christian, the believer who is faithful unto death, you're going to get that crown of life also, right? Uh, while some are very uncomfortable with the idea of having eternal life now because it might indicate the impossibility of apostasy, it is a biblical claim. And by the way, the, the biblical claim of currently possessing eternal life does not uh, negate the impossibility of apostasy. In fact, we've already seen back in chapter 2, there were those who went out from among us. He's going to talk about the sin and the death in just a few moments, and, uh, or in a few verses, I should say, because we're not going to be able to cover it this morning. But that's also clearly someone, uh, uh, someone who is sinning unto death, that's an apostate thing as well. 
but we'll talk about those things when we come to them. Again, I just want to emphasize here once more, my brother, my sister, we have eternal life. This is the whole reason John writes. Verse 13, he makes that clear. I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we do. We do. The contrast is severe. As, As great and as high as the joy of having eternal life is, there's the contrast of the depths and the sadness that goes along with not having the Son. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What do you possess then? All there is outside of life is death. You continue to be dead in your trespasses and your sins. And all that awaits you after death, physical death in this world, is the second death, which John also writes about in the Revelation. A place of torment day and night. The unceasing anguish of the second death, which is the lake of fire. This is why we exhort all people, flee to Jesus. Believe in Christ. Believe the testimony that God has borne and continues to bear witness to. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Come to Him by faith. And he will never disappoint. That all who come to him will find him a more than willing Savior and a more than perfect Savior. And indeed, flee from death, spiritual death, and come to enjoy the spiritual life that is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a message that is recorded here by John, but he got it from his master. Let me conclude with John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about the resurrection. That He is the one who will raise the dead and that the Father has entrusted judgment to Him because of who He is. He is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And He says in verse 23, But the reason the Father has given judgment to Him, the Son, is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Notice verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. May I just ask, have you heard the word of Christ? Do you believe the Father who sent Him? You have eternal life, my brothers, my sisters. This is where John is getting it from. He's pulling it from the Son Himself. He does not come into judgment. Why is that? All your sins have already been judged in Christ. He bore them on the cross, and God passed judgment on your sins in His own Son. So that you don't have to face a a judgment away from God. So that you're not condemned. God's already condemned your sin. You have been declared not guilty. You have been declared, you have been given life, new life in the Son. You have passed from death to life. There it is. We are those who pass from death to life. And we call all people 
to hear the words of Christ, to believe in the Father who sent Him, and likewise to pass from death to life. Some people get the mistaken idea that the reason Jesus came was to make good people better. That you can have a better life. You, you, you may be doing okay right now, but your, your life can be so much better if you just believe in Jesus. Again, that's, that's the enemy of truth talking. Because there are none who do good. No, not one. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. And we were dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Let's commit this to prayer. Father, we rejoice in this blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. We have the Son, which means we have life. We are our beloved's. His desire is for us. We are our beloved's and... Our beloved is ours. We rejoice and give you thanks in that. And we pray, Father, that we would, as righteous ones, that we would be bold as lions, and yet gentle as doves, that we would seek to make known the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect to everyone who asks, that we would share the gospel with everyone that we know. Because it truly is good news. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. He came to make dead people live. And my friend, if you are here this morning and you have not believed in the Son, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the testimony of Scripture. It's not my opinion. It's not what I think. It's what text says. It's what God himself is speaking to your heart right now. You are dead, dead, dead in trespasses and sins. But life can be yours, even this morning. If you will but believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, turn away, renounce your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, confess him as Lord, and be baptized, immersed in water, have all your sins washed away, raised to live this new life with God as your Father, possessing the Son, which means you have this new life, with the Holy Spirit within you, bearing witness that you are a child of God. Again, we can help you with that in just a moment. Eric is going to lead us in a song, and it's designed to encourage you to take that very important step in your journey to the Father. Be obedient to Christ, even this morning. Most of us, many of us, we've done that, brothers and sisters. We've been obedient to the call of the gospel. But as you reflect on the things that we have talked about this morning, you contemplate your own spiritual walk. Maybe there's some area in your life that you need to lay before the cross. That you need to lay before the throne of grace and seek the help that only God can give you. In a moment, you know when Eric leads us, that's your opportunity to come forward and we'll surround you with love and we'll lift you up in prayer. Maybe, as we've talked about, maybe you've wandered. 
you wandered away from the fold of God and, and you need to come back home. My brother, my sister, that's a good thing. Coming home is not a thing of embarrassment. It's not a thing of shame. It's a thing to rejoice over. We see our Father goes running when we come running, when, when, when we return. He goes running to us and meets us when we return to Him. Again, when Eric leads us, that's your opportunity as well to come forward. And we'll surround you with uh, love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven who delights in helping his children. Maybe it's something of a personal nature and you want a private setting. One of our shepherds will be available in the conference room. Make your way to the conference room through these double doors to, 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 to my left, your right. And one of our shepherds will meet you there. And they'll do the same thing there that we do here. Surround you with love and lift you up in prayer as you unburden your heart before the throne of grace. Maybe it's something altogether different than what we talked about this morning, something that's been weighing upon your heart, your mind. could be something uh, physical or emotional or mental or spiritual, what have you. The lesson is yours. The invitation is open. Won't you come right now while we stand as we sing? Still at the cross.